Indeed, Lord, you are good, and we, we long to behold your goodness and your glory. We know that our, our, our finite frames can't take it all in. It would, it would consume us if we were to, to behold it all, and so we, we, we pray just to, to behold some refraction, some refracted beam of the light of the glory of Christ, even now as we come before your word, the one who, who entered triumphantly and yet gave up his own life to death, that we may be in triumph, that we may have victory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Please take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke 23. If, if you don't have a Bible or if you don't feel like the Bible you have is very readable, we would be absolutely delighted for you to take home that copy that's in your row uh, as our gift to you. It, we'd be really excited for it to be used more than just on Sundays. Uh, as I mentioned, this is, this is what churches often recognize as Holy Week, uh, the final days of our Lord's life um, coming to his crucifixion. Now, if you've been with us for the last seven months, it's been a holy week that stretched out since August. We studied the triumphal entry at the end of August, and it's been since August, uh, other than a couple of Sundays to look at other things, it's been since August that we have been looking at this final week of our Lord's life. I, I, I hope that as you come into this holy week and you study uh, you, the events of each day, that they take on more meaning to you because of our time that we have spent together in God's Word. Um, all of it, it culminates next Lord's Day as we gather and we enter into Luke 24 where we see the account of the resurrection. But just as a reminder of our context, we saw that our Lord uh, last week died. He gave up His spirit. And now it's time for his body to remove, uh, to be removed from the cross. Now normally we'd expect his disciples to have done that, but they're nowhere to be found. But God has this taken care of, and he has raised up some unlikely people to give our Lord a proper burial. This is Luke 23, starting at verse 50. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 884. Listen to God's word now. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and saw how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. By my count, in my eight years, eight and a half years at First Scots, I've done 24 funerals. I count funerals to be among the highest privileges that I'm given as a pastor because I can think of 
no greater privilege in this life than to offer gospel hope to grieving families. But I can tell you that of those 24 funerals, I've never had anyone give me the kind of detail that Luke feels compelled to relay here concerning what happened with the body of Christ between death and burial. That is known as the funerary process. That funerary process from the moment of death until the funeral is really uh, a behind-the-scenes process today. Most of us don't know what goes on behind the scenes. We don't discuss typically who came and picked up the body or where it was taken or how the body was prepared or where it was stored before burial. And so to us, it seems a little bit peculiar to get these details uh, from Luke. And so he gives us these details, not because he has some morose fascination with death, but because these details concerning the death and the burial of Christ actually confirm our hope of eternal life. Though you may not have immediately seen that in reading the text, this text helps to secure our hope in Jesus Christ. As we look at it, I want you to see three things. First, we're just going to look at Joseph's biography. We're going to get to know this man. Then we're going to look at Christ's burial. And then we're going to look at the disciples' bravery. So let's look first at the biography of this man, Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea, you've probably heard of him. He's a fascinating character in the scriptures because he shows up, he buries Jesus, and he disappears. We don't hear anything else about him. He's a little bit like Simeon. You remember we met Simeon at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. He shows up. He, he's one of the few who rightly recognize the, recognizes the importance of Christ's birth, and then he disappears. We don't see him again. And Joseph of Arimathea serves sort of as a bookend to Simeon. He's, he's one of the few people who rightly commemorates and recognizes our Lord's death. Now, even though this is only, as far as we know, appearance in Scripture, uh, all four Gospels include him, so there's a good bit that we know about him. Let me tell you what we know about Joseph. First, we know that he's from a town called Arimathea. Now, we don't know where Arimathea is. It, it may have been uh, the more modern name for Ramah, the place where Samuel is from, about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Second, we're told in Matthew 27, 51, that he was a wealthy man. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that to impress us, and God is certainly no respecter of persons. He's not impressed with wealth. He's got all the cattle on a thousand hills. In fact, uh, Christ warns us about wealth, that, that it can prevent some from entering God's kingdom. But the reason Matthew mentions his wealth here is that it'll become a significant aspect of Christ's burial, and we're going to come back to that shortly. Third, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the council, and that's talking about the Jewish Supreme Court known as the Sanhedrin. It was 70 or 72, we're not sure, men from the priestly class in Israel. They were either Pharisees or Sadducees, and they were commissioned as judges to be impartial and fair and just. Now, if you've been following along, you know they've been anything but impartial and fair and just. But, but Joseph is a member of that group. Fourth, Luke tells us here that even though Joseph was on the council, he didn't agree with the council's decision to execute Jesus. He was opposed to them condemning Christ. Now that's interesting because if you read Mark 14 and Mark 15, it tells us that the council's decision 
was unanimous. So how is it that, that this man, Joseph, didn't agree? Well, we don't know exactly. Uh, it's possible that he wasn't told about the meeting. The, the, the Sanhedrin did all sorts of clandestine things, and so it's possible that they knew he would oppose them, and so they excluded him. It's possible that he abstained from voting. I think more likely the answer is, and we'll come to this in a few minutes, but he was probably afraid to be put in that position of publicly proclaiming himself as a follower of Christ. Well, that's the next thing, why he opposed Jesus being executed. It's because he was a follower. Each of the Gospels tells us this differently. Luke says it here. He was a good and righteous man. Now, saying he's good and righteous, that is talking about gospel righteousness. It's talking about a man who is bearing fruit of the Spirit. And Luke doubles up on that. He tells us he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew and John each are more specific. They call him a disciple. Now, we don't know a timeline for, for Joseph's conversion, um, but one thing we're going to see is, is, is that this is a unique man. He's a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and yet he's a follower of Christ. He's in a very difficult position. We're told one more thing about Joseph and explains a lot about him. He was a man-fearer. He was afraid of what others thought of him. Look with me at John 19 for a moment. We're going to stay in John because John's going to shine some light on this. But John 19, verse 38, we're told, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate for the body. Uh, This man's a follower of Christ, but his affinity for Christ has been eclipsed by his timidity and his fear of what others would do for him, uh, do to him. Now consider what he had to lose. Look back with me just, just a few chapters at John 12. And you're going to want to keep your finger on this passage because we'll come back to it in just a moment. But we see that there were actually several in authority that believed Jesus, and yet they were afraid to profess that belief. Look at, at John uh, 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. Do you understand what Joseph had to lose here? He would be put out of the synagogue. In other words, he would be excommunicated. He would be outcast. Now, the synagogue wasn't just the, the place of religious worship. It was the place of social life. So he'd be cut off from religious worship. He would be cast out of social life. He would lose his social standing. He would be cast off of the Sanhedrin. He would, be, he would suffer in business, and he would be alienated probably until death. That's what, what it entailed for a religious leader to profess Christ. And so John tells us, keep looking there at verse 43, John tells us a little bit about the dilemma. These religious leaders have to decide, do I want the approval and the status of this world or do I want to live for the glory of Christ? Look at verse 43. These are devastating words. I wonder if these are words that would be said of any of us. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
their lust for the approval of others eclipsed in their eyes the glory of God. They would rather be affirmed. They would rather be accepted by others than to live their lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. They would not dare publicly confess Christ or go against the crowd. Their religion is all outward. It is to be seen by others. How could they choose the approval of the creatures over the glory of the Creator? It's because they really didn't know. They really hadn't understood the glory of God. And so the glory that comes from men, the approval of men, the positions that men can give, had such control over them. That's what John's saying. They've never experienced this wondrous presence of the glory of Christ, the wonderful sense of who He is. They've never stood really in awe of Him so that they'd be willing to sacrifice all these earthly things for the glory of Christ. It it was a deep-seated internal struggle for these men including Joseph of Arimathea, thinking, you know, I think Jesus may be right, but is he worth it? Is it worth giving up all these things to follow him? And, and, he, and he hoped, I think he hoped to live one foot in each world, one foot in the world of human approval and the other foot in the kingdom of God. Is that you? Do you struggle with that desire for the affirmation of men so much so that you're living on the hamster wheel of people-pleasing? You work and work and work and work and work and you get nowhere. That's where these men were. They loved the approval of men, the security, the esteem of men so much that they couldn't see the glory of Christ. But as we're going to see, these circumstances bring Joseph to a crisis, a point of crisis. The crisis is, am I going to live for the approval of man or Christ? Yeah, that's Galatians 1.10. I want you to look there with me because I know that many of us struggle with seeking the approval of this world, of seeking the approval of men. And some of us just need to get this tattooed on our foreheads, don't we? Galatians 1.10 Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I seeking to please men? If I am seeking to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's the crisis. Are you going to live for the glory that comes from men or live unto the glory of God? Joseph hoped to have a foot in both worlds, but now he's brought to a point of crisis. And the crisis all hinges around Christ's burial. So this is our second point, Christ's burial. If you were to read through this whole section of Christ's trials, his death, and all the way up to his resurrection, it would seem like his burial was an incidental footnote, an inconsequential point among many, many other more important things. But I want you to understand the burial of Christ 
is actually extraordinarily important for a number of reasons. Let me give you several. First, the burial is important because it proves his incarnation. It's proof of his incarnation. We've seen all sorts of proofs of the, de- the divinity or the deity of Christ, that, that he could uh, raise the dead, he could cast out demons, he could heal diseases, and so on. But we also see in the scriptures these proofs that he's truly human. He, he was bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. To die in our place, he needed to be truly man. Not an angel, not a superhuman being, but true man like you and me are. And what stronger, clearer proof of humanity could there be than the fact that he died and was buried? So first, it it confirms the incarnation. Second, the burial is important because it serves as proof of death. I saw a picture the other day for a, of a for sale sign in the yard of a house. And in the background, you could see the house was right across the street from a cemetery. And the sign on top of the yard sale sign, uh, of the for sale sign said, Quiet Neighbors. Do you know what every body in the cemetery, whether they're black or white or yellow or green, rich or poor, do you know what they all have in common? They died. Because that is what humans do. The burial of Christ serves as confirmation that he truly died. How big a deal is that? Well, if Jesus Christ wasn't dead and buried, then we're still dead in our sins. When Paul, in that wonderful sermon, 1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful discourse on the resurrection, He says, starting in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says this is a matter of first importance. He really died. He really was buried. That's why the Apostles' Creed, which has been in the church for at least 1,500 years, makes that explicit statement, he was crucified, dead, and buried. The burial of Christ reminds us, it testifies that he truly died for our sins. Third, the burial of Christ is important because it serves as a confirmation hearing. I just want you to look at the text. How many people through the burial of Christ testify that Christ truly died? Joseph of Arimathea, sometime around 3 p.m., right as Christ dies, he goes straight to Pilate and asks for the body. Well, Pilate says, how's he died so soon? Oftentimes crucifixion took a couple of days, but As we saw last week, Christ's death came fairly quickly because his work was finished and he was the one who voluntarily gave up his soul and committed his soul to his father. Well, Pilate says, let me me get proof of death. So he sends for the centurion. You remember that guy, right? We met him last week. He's the one that saw Jesus die and he says, surely this man was innocent. And so the centurion comes running, and he testifies to Pilate, yes, this man's truly dead. He probably told him about the other soldier who cast his spear into Jesus' side and the the water that came pouring out. That is medical proof that Jesus had died. And then we'll see, as we go further, we'll see the testimony of another member of the ruling court, 
of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus. He bears witness that Jesus died. And then we see these women, these amazing women that help prepare the body, and all of them bear witness. It's a confirmation hearing proving to us that Jesus truly died. If we could go back and interview them, do you know what testimony they would give? They would say, he was really dead. He had no pulse. We didn't just think he was dead. He was truly dead. You know, this is Easter week, and so you're going to, if you have the History Channel or Discovery Channel or any of these other things, you're going to see these theories that float around every year at this time, and it looks something like this. Jesus didn't really die. He just passed out on the cross. Let me tell you this. The Romans were very good at their jobs. The Roman executors were experts in death. They did not make mistakes like that. But just to tell you how far flung these, uh, these theories are, you can go back 1,500 years to Muhammad. Muhammad in the Quran. He says this, the Jews say, we killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary. But they didn't kill him, nor did they crucify them. But it was made to appear so to them, and they did not kill him for certain. These theories that Jesus wasn't truly dead have been in, 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 outside of the church, but have been in existence for at least 1,500 years. But Muhammad was wrong. We have at least six confirmations that Jesus was truly dead here. So it serves as a confirmation. Fourth, it's also important because it's a matter of keeping God's law. Look back with me at Deuteronomy 21. It's amazing how specific this is. Deuteronomy 21, you've got this whole section about the curse upon someone hung on a tree. Starting in verse 22, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death, and you uh, hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So it's a matter of God's law that he needed to be buried, and he needed to be buried that day. Fifth, Christ's burial is important because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. You're good Bible students, so I trust you've already connected the dots from what we read in Isaiah 53, our Old Testament reading, and this man, Joseph of Arimathea. What did Isaiah 53, verse 9, tell us? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now, that was 700 years before God was saying through the prophet Isaiah, do you want to know how you'll recognize the Messiah when he comes? He'll be buried in the grave of a rich man. Now, do you think Joseph had that on his mind at all? I doubt it. I doubt it. But God did, and God used Joseph for the fulfillment of this prophecy. There's one more reason that the burial of Christ was so important. It became incontrovertible proof of the resurrection. See, here's what normally happened with executed criminals. Uh, when you were executed for the crime of sedition, that's, that's what Jesus was charged with, you lost your right to a traditional burial. And what would happen normally was that these men upon the cross would have been taken and thrown in a mass grave 
where they would be left to rot or they would burn with dozens of other bodies. Think about this. Had Jesus' body been thrown into a mass grave with with other bodies, it would have been impossible for the disciples or for us today to point to the empty tomb as evidence of the resurrection. That's how important the burial is. And so that's why Luke not only tells us that Christ was buried, he tells us where Christ was buried and all these different people who saw the uh, Christ buried. Well, this puts the, the followers of Christ into a quandary. This intensifies that crisis that we talked about. You know, they know Jesus needs to be buried that day and he needs to be buried before sunset, before the Sabbath comes. And just think of the timeline here. Uh, Christ died at 3 p.m. when the darkness lifted off the land. They probably spent another hour going back and forth, getting permission from Pilate. Pilate sent for the centurion and so on. Then they had to go gather the, the linens, we're told, that, that, that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus brought. They had to gather the spices that the women brought. And they had to do it before sunset, before the Sabbath began, or the body would have had to been left out until Sunday. This brings us to the third thing I want you to see, and that's the brave disciples. Just a reminder, if you were to rewind uh, 24 hours, you would hear Peter say something like this to Jesus back in Luke 22, verse 33. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death. Where's Peter right now? We have no idea. But God has raised up these brave disciples, these largely unknown disciples, who not only want to give Jesus a a, a proper burial as is honoring for him, but they want to keep the law by burying Jesus before the sun sets and the Sabbath begins. And so Pilate gives Joseph permission to bury the body. He runs back to Golgotha. We find him here, according to John 19, 39, that Nicodemus joined him. You remember Nicodemus? That's our friend Alex McBride from First African calls him Nick at night. Why does he call him that? Because Nicodemus came to him at night. Why did he come at night? Because he was ashamed. He was afraid of what the Jews would do to him. He too struggled with loving the glory that comes from men. But now these two men who a few hours ago were afraid are now unafraid to show themselves openly as lovers of the crucified Christ. And these two wealthy men, they're going to take down the body. Either that would involve climbing a ladder up the cross or if the Romans had lowered the cross then they could... uh, they could uh, walk up to it and use pry bars to pull out the nails that had secured him to the cross and then they would drape his arms over their shoulders and they would carry his limp body to this new tomb, this tomb that Joseph uh, had had hewed out for his family to use. And these two former closet disciples now openly identify themselves with Christ. And they're joined by these women as well. Mark tells us it was Mary Magdalene and Mary. These were two consummate, courageous followers of Christ. Uh, You know, I I think Luke wants us to hear this loud and clear. That at the cross, at the resurrection, the most faithful and the most courageous witnesses were women. You know, I I can't help but commend our sisters in Christ in this church because I I often believe that the the women of this church outstrip us 
in godliness, in courage, in, in piety. I, I see so often in churches today men who are so concerned about work and so concerned about play, that, but they are apathetic to Christ. And yet we see godly women who are fearless for the sake of Christ. And so you have this small group that starts to prepare the body, but then the sun sets. They're not going to violate the Sabbath, so they leave the body there, and Joseph rolls a great stone over the entrance. We have to stop and ask the obvious question here. What changed in these men that took them from cowards to courageous? What changed them from, from spineless to stalwarts? How did they go from observers of an empty religious system to steadfast witnesses of the Lord Jesus? What happened in that time? Simply put, they beheld the glory of Christ as he hung upon the cross. They looked up there and they saw something different. This is not just a good example. This is not just a good teacher. This is God. This is the glorious one. And it transformed them so that that part of them that had been so concerned about the glory that comes from men, it was gone. And they cared. They were consumed with the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what changed. They weren't naturally brave. We see that here. They were naturally scared. The cross transformed them. Think about this scene. These men were Jewish leaders. It was Passover week. And they know that if they touch a dead body, they are now excluded from the religious festivities. They'd be rendered ceremonially unclean, could not participate in the Passover activities that day. They couldn't participate in the Passover, uh, in the, the Sabbath worship that evening can you imagine the scene they kind of look at each other as they're getting ready to touch the body for the first time something no jewish priest leader would have done joseph you realize if we touch them we can't celebrate the passover i know but this is our passover lamb Christ, our Passover lamb, has come. And they understood all, the, all of a sudden, they understood that everything that the shadows and types and symbols of the old covenant pointed to was this man, Jesus Christ, laying there. Christ, their Passover lamb. And these two men now gladly have chosen to suffer shame. They're glad to become outcasts. They're glad to give of their time, their energy, and their finances all for the service of Christ. Let me tell you, that's what happens when you've caught a glimpse of the glory of Christ. It becomes nothing to serve him. You, you can say with the Apostle Paul, I count all things lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what these men experienced. They came to see the difference between the things that matter and the things that don't. And they realized that all those things, like the approval of men, don't matter. What matters in life is the glory of Christ. I know you're Presbyterian, but say Amen. 
All that matters is the glory of Christ. And as they stood there and they saw the absurdity of the scene as the the Creator breathed His last, and they saw the foolishness of living for the glory of men, and they saw the emptiness of their foolish religion, and they looked at the cross, and they saw this Jesus who, who didn't curse His persecutors, but He prayed for them. And they watched as he took the curse onto himself. When you realize that, when you realize what really happened on the cross, that it's more than a mere symbol, but it's God meeting us and redeeming us, it transforms you. They realized what they were seeing on the cross wasn't a deluded criminal, but it was God in his glory. Isn't that amazing to think that the cross was perhaps the most stunning evidence of the glory of God that this world has ever known. And when your eyes are open to see that, to see the superior worth and the beauty of the glory of Christ, you learn to live for the glory of God and not the glory that comes from man. That's why these men were transformed. They could no longer live for the glory of men. It it was strangely dim to them now. It was evidence of God's saving work in their hearts that these earthly accolades no longer appeal to me. What appeals to me is the glory of Jesus. These men were not naturally brave. But the sight of the astounding glory of Jesus Christ is what gives the saints strength to stand firm. It is, to quote Michael Reeves, it's the sight, this sight, Jesus and his glory, that surpasses zeal for human approval and it turns lambs into lions. It's not natural courage that Nicodemus or Joseph were born with, but they beheld Christ and they became lions for the faith. They became fearless. Isn't it amazing how when we really behold the glory and wonder of Jesus, all those other earthly glories fade away? Let me ask you, has that ever happened to you? I, I feel like if, if, if the Pharisees and the rest of the Sanhedrin had said, Joseph, Nicodemus, what changed? And they told him, we beheld the glory of Christ. The members of the Sanhedrin would go, oh, good, fine, whatever. Because it made no sense to them. Let me ask you, beloved, have you beheld the glory of Christ such that it captivates you? It transforms you so that you can say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's what it is to be a Christian. And what was once empty ritual and heartless obedience now becomes worship. We need this because empty ritual and heartless obedience is not going to be enough. Joseph and Nicodemus, they were forced into a crisis where they had to decide, am I going to live for the glory of this world or will I live for the glory of Christ? Beloved, so too is one coming for us. The church 
has tried so hard to make friends with the world and the world is shunning the church and now you church have the decision to make you have that crisis will I live for the glory that comes from men and and be seen as accepting seen as tolerant and so on or will I live for the glory of Christ because the apostle Paul's right you cannot live for them both you cannot be a servant of man and Christ and so as we Christians are soon being pushed to the fringes of society and as we are being vilified as narrow and intolerant and as public enemy number one empty religious ritual will not be enough you need to be transfixed upon the glory of Christ that alone will embolden you because otherwise you will become like the millions of others who have abandoned church because they love the glory of men. If you want to be faithful to Christ, no matter what comes, then fix your eyes upon his glory. And what's amazing about that is the more you focus on his glory, the more glorious he becomes. We're going to sing that in a few minutes. The things of earth grow strangely dim. Why? Because you've seen real glory. And it transforms religion empty religion into joyful service and rather than living for and loving the applause of men as our reward do you know what the true reward is it's christ himself he is our reward and the world's scorn and the world's uh, the cost of following christ will become as nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him how do we apply this text I want you, for one thing, just to consider the importance of the Sabbath in this text. You know, if there was ever a day in history where people might be justified in breaking the Sabbath, it was this day. They have just watched the most traumatic event in the history of the world. But here, these faithful disciples were committed to keeping the Lord's day holy. You know, Joseph and Nicodemus knew that the ceremonial law had been fulfilled. That's why they were willing to touch the body. But the Sabbath is not part of the ceremonial law. It's the Ten Commandments. It's a moral commandment. And so, Joseph and Nicodemus, along with the the women, did not forget to honor God. And they took a holy rest that day. I think the world and nominal Christianity would say that is so legalistic of them. Let me show you what legalism does with the Sabbath day. Do you know what the Pharisees were doing the day uh, of the Sabbath just after Jesus died? Matthew 27, verse 62, tells us they were at Pilate's palace of all places, a Gentile's palace, petitioning Pilate to put a guard at the tomb. They didn't understand the Sabbath at all. It's not a day to exert political power. It's a day where we set aside all our other duties so that we can be undistracted and gaze upon the glory of Christ. That's what it is to keep the Sabbath. It's a day where we engage our hearts. That's why we have morning and evening worship to give you a double helping of the glory of Christ. That's the right use of the Sabbath focusing our hearts and minds on his glory.
One more application. I have said this, I think, the last three weeks as an application, and I'll say it again this week. Christian, do not fear death because Christ has transformed the grave. You know, many people are afraid of graveyards because they're afraid of death. We don't need to fear death because our Savior has gone before us. We don't fear the grave because Jesus has gone before us into it. Let me quote these amazing words from the Puritan John Flavel. He says, The great end of Christ's burial was the conquering of death in its own dominion and territory. The grave belonged to death. And Jesus went there, he's saying, to conquer it. The victory over the grave furnished saints with their own triumphant song of victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Flavel says, our graves would not be so sweet and comfortable to us when we come to lie down in them if Jesus had not laid there before us and for us. Death is a dragon, the grave its din, is a place of dread and terror, but Christ has gone into the den, grappled with it, and forever overcome it, disarming it of all terror, so that saints, when they die, simply go lie down on the bed where Jesus has been before them. Jesus, my friends, Jesus has robbed the grave of all its terror. Oh, do not fear death, beloved. Jesus has been there before you. He has made the way into death, and he has broken death's chains. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word captivates the born-again heart, how it stirs us up, how it brings us such joy as we catch these, these glimpses of the glory of Christ. And I pray that every man, woman, and child in this room has seen that today, that they have seen the glory of Christ, and that any who, who, who leave here unchanged, God, that they would have to ask the question, why, why have I not been transformed by the power of the gospel? And that they would fall on their faces confessing their sin and seeking Jesus to save them. Lord, that is... That is what we were made for, is to enjoy your glory. That's what our hearts are restless for until they rest in your glory. And I pray for all of us to behold your glory. And it's amazing that one of the places we most behold your glory is the place where it seemed the most hidden, in the grave. But we see that when Jesus came up from the grave, the grave was conquered. And now his 